welcome to There is Power in Your Story podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Veronica Hardy. To learn more about me, this podcast, or my book, A Letter to My Sisters, please visit my website, drveronicahardy.com. Our guest today is Dr. Vali, a counselor, assistant professor, researcher, and social justice advocate. Dr. Vali was raised in India, and she also pursued her higher education in the United States. Listen to her unique perspective on counseling, realizing that people's lives are much richer than a diagnosis, as well as how she coped being an international student and the power of her prayer for instilling hope. Join us to be inspired by her story. Could you start by telling our listeners a little about yourself, both personally and professionally? Sure. So, um, uh, as I mentioned, my name is Dr. Vali, and I am an assistant professor at Southern Oregon University. And I train graduate students in counseling programs so that they can go in the community and work as licensed professional counselors. And counseling has been a huge passion of mine, not just in terms of practice, but I'm also a researcher, which means I try to figure out ways in which people can get the best and the most effective forms of um, counseling treatment. So I try to inquire into practices that are that are sound, that are grounded in data. So I'm a researcher as well. In addition to that, I want to view myself as a social justice advocate, as an immigrant, as a former international student. I've had some fresh insights into um, the American society and its opportunity for growth, which led to contributing to my social justice work around immigration and um, immigration inclusivity, basically, in our community. A lot of this is also stemmed from my personal life, as you asked. So um, I did come to the U.S. about six, six and a half years ago. And before that, I grew up in India. That's where I was born. That's where I got my, um, until high school I was there. And then I came to the U.S. for my higher education. So in many ways, I'm also a third culture uh, person, you know, navigating between Indian collectivistic cultures and um, relatively more individualistic American values. Do you have your own unique style when it comes to counseling? Like you said, you train up others to counsel, you, you research in regards to counseling, say methods and techniques. Do you have your own unique style or even unique view when it comes to counseling? Yes, I think a lot of my philosophy in how I view my clients is informed by my own mental health experiences. And what I've come to see is, although approaches such as offering a diagnosis, offering a terminology for people's symptoms is helpful, but it can also be extremely confining. So in my private practice, I actually don't give a diagnosis and my clients know about it since the day one that they work with me. I do talk about their symptoms. I do talk about how to take care of their distress. But I avoid saying that you are a depressed person. You are an anxious person. Because our clients' experiences and lives are so much more richer and so much more complex 
than what a diagnostic and statistical manual can understand. If they really need a diagnosis for, um, you know, for their educational purposes or their work reasons, yes, I don't hesitate to mention it in their letter. But I, I start off the work with recognizing that your lives are way more complex, way more richer than what a list of symptoms in a book written by, you know, Eurocentric academics can capture. And that is powerful. And I'm sure that the, the people that you work with and provide counseling to also appreciate that, not being limited to a label. Absolutely. I think when we offer an opportunity to redefine ourselves rather than having people be defined by a manual, it is empowering and it is also exciting. So when I say, how do you want to define your symptoms? How do you view yourself? Do you think you are diseased? Do you think um, what you're experiencing is pathological? It's fresh, it's empowering because very few people are asked how they view themselves. They are often told who they are. It disempowers someone to tell them who they are or what they are rather than them being able to share, this is how I view myself and this is my experience. You also described yourself as a social justice advocate. And it sounds like that that may have come out of, again, your own experiences that you have had. Could you share more with our listeners about what that means to you in regards to being a social justice advocate and what may have led to that? So a social justice advocate, um, there's so many ways to fight for equity in our society. And what I mean by that is we don't have to pick only one form of advocacy, be that street advocacy, be that uh, lobbying uh, with our <laughs> representatives. It Even when I sit at home with my family members and somebody says an oppressive word, somebody uses a stigmatizing word, if I pause and help them understand why they said and what they said is offensive, that in that moment is advocacy. In that moment, I step into the role of an advocate. So advocacy can happen in so many realms of our life as a coworker, as a parent, as a partner, as a community member, and definitely as a citizen in our society. So I realized in my classrooms that I was often asked to speak for the experiences of larger Indian communities. Well, I do come from India, but I cannot speak for the diverse communities there. So I, I paused and instead of, um, I, I paused and used it as an opportunity to voice my opinions and tell my class, tell my instructors that their, their perception of the story is incorrect. I only carry one story of the Indian society. So in that moment, I came to realize that having a voice and expressing it in circumstances that feel safe is in itself advocacy, to show up in spaces that deny my existence, that don't include my existence, is in itself advocacy. So the fact that people who look like me, immigrants, um, international students, or people who are often labeled as undocumented, when we show up in our workplaces, when we show up for our families, that in itself is an act of resistance and advocacy for our community. And my experiences came from my, my story as an international student who flew from India 
for her graduate education and and almost immediately i was labeled and seen as this almost this helpless woman of color uh, this helpless child who needed to be rescued by local community members who would come and say very well intentioned but rather microaggressive statements and uh, that's when i realized that i no longer have those layers and layers of privilege protecting me that i used to have in india so i recognize that the privileges that we carry is so contextual it is so uh, temporary and that's what pushed me to do some self work for sure so i went for my own counseling and i had to dismantle my own internalized class privilege class caste privilege and um i also in, in you know dismantle my own heterosexist cisgender privilege and in that process i realized it's such an empowering experience to pause and say i don't want to be this person anymore i don't want to use my privilege um to further repress people around me and that led to a lot more research and clinical work sharing that part of your story where you obtained your own counseling so you could dismantle some of what lie within inside of you i think that's going to be so valuable to our listeners to be able to hear that like you mentioned the self work that we need to go through for ourselves as individuals and that makes us better or stronger or more insightful as individuals and as social advocates enhances our awareness you also use this statement about um or you use the term microaggressive statements mm. that mm. other people were imposing on you do you have any other types of experiences like that you have been through or maybe how you may have responded sure so there are definitely circumstances when i didn't respond or couldn't respond because of how shocking and how absurd some statements felt so i want to normalize that there are indeed moments when the the shock of a microaggressive statement can really disarm us for a moment and there's no i hope there is no shame or vulnerability or, or embarrassment around it i remember this moment dr hardy i was actually defending my dissertation and i uh, just a little bit of context like i said i grew up in india and india is a former british colony So right from the age of 2 to 1/2 I learned how to speak English. I know how to speak other Indian languages, but English was definitely my classroom language. So here I am having written a 300-page dissertation with lots of research pouring out my stories. And at the end of the defense, one of the comments that um an attendee gave me was um that was such you have such strong um pronunciation and your enunciation was so clear congratulations for that mm-hmm. and i was of course tired i just i just defended my dissertation and I, i i did not respond to it at that time it's hours later when i just sat down and processed i realized i mean what the heck was that <laughs> i just defended my dissertation i talked about the stories and the most salient feedback from that that this person could give me was my pronunciation and my clear communication the whole dissertation was about dismantling stereotypes about international students so that was one um another one was when um 
again i was in grad school i went to my friend's house and her daughter who i believe at that time was in her late 20s and she's married and had a couple of kids and she said she's surprised i'm not married yet because according to her people in india get married at the age of 5 or 6 now we do have child marriage problems a crisis basically in india but i'm literally in front of her pursue my graduate education and yet it surprised her so these are internalized images and we cannot fault only the individual we have to fault a system that normalizes such images one dimensional stories of historically marginalized communities you also mentioned about india and mm-hmm. i'm thinking of what was the transition like say from india to the united states were there any say shifts in identity or identity expectations even imposed on you sure so in india i grew up in the capital new delhi and i um happened to be born with many many uh, strengths unearned privileges that really set me up for success be that economic social class caste and i grew up in a two parent family um so there were just many many what do i say like a reservoir of advantages that i was just given handed handed out and then i i come to the us and suddenly i have like this very budgeted bank balance and i have to take care of my education plan for my meals plan for running my house quickly build a sense of community because i was in midwest us right rural rural midwest rural kansas and very few people look like me very few people who look like me were my instructors who were powerful community members the transition was certainly along i'm no longer a child i'm no longer being protected by my parents i have to stand alone for myself while this may be a very normalized idea in the us where you know children often leave home at the age of 18 19 or 20 that is not the case for us we stay with our parents until the day we get married and then we move on and we still have multiple layers of social structure supporting us be that grandparents in-laws cousins and i was stripped of all that and now new identities came that i had to prepare and voice for in a national student woman of color i'm relatively on the on the other side of the economic privilege i am on a tight budget so all of this was certainly very new there were definitely nights when i would sit down tear up and cry i remember my neighbors and i would because of running short of money we would try to find local churches which were serving meals so we know that our wednesday and sunday nights were pretty booked <laughs> uh, so we had to you know use our um creativity our navigation strategies to find a way to simply survive simply survive that first year where you don't know the local culture or anything so the survival mode was the only thing that was dominating our thinking where am i going to get my next meal how am i going to save some more money like you said there were times when you had tears or, and cried and it seemed like there there was a support system some friends around you that you were able to um what gather together with at times were there other ways that you were able to cope during those periods 
definitely praying helped. So I identify as a Hindu, and that's the faith in in which I was raised. And I would oftentimes slow down, sit down in my room, and just pray. And my praying was also informed by my family values. So not just limiting myself to reading scriptures, but just you know, from the bottom of my heart, I would just pour out to God and say, just just give me a sign. Just help me out. Instill hope. That's what I would always pray for. Just instill hope in me that I can get through this. So the, the idea of seeking the power, the, uh, seeking the support of a higher power directly informed how I showed up as a clinician as well. Instead of shying away from my clients, talking about this spirituality, talking about their faith, I embraced it. I let them know that I don't identify as a Christian or, or a Muslim or whatever their um, corresponding faith is, but I definitely invite them to share what strength and what uh, meaning they derive from their religious connection. So faith was definitely a strong factor in my, in my journey for sure. I appreciate that full circle where we started by talking about the counseling and mm-hmm. your, your unique view and how you say facilitate your sessions and engage with others to say your own transitions and identity, what other people have imposed on you and your own self work that you have done. And now faith, that role of that faith has taken place. Mm-hmm. And then how that also affects how you approach your counseling. Absolutely. I think um, life offers us multiple opportunities and the trauma, the distress that uh, was offered to me, I have through my counseling and faith, um, have come to see that as an opportunity to better empathize with my clients. So I do know when my clients talk about how challenged and how broken down they feel in that moment. I may not know the exact circumstance, but I can definitely relate to the emotional experience. And ultimately, that's what makes counseling an existential profession for me. Every time a client walks in, I'm joined in their experience through the shared human connection of just emotions. And I think that is something that actually all of us can do when we pause, sit down, and offer a listening and caring space In that moment, we step into another person's worldview. And that's the most healing thing we can do as people. That is a beautiful way to describe counseling and the counseling experience, especially for those who question exactly what it is or who are hesitant to actually engage in it. And to hear about this type of experience, what it truly is and the, the foundation of it and that human connection That was such a beautiful way that you described it. Thank you. You also noted earlier that that you were an international student as well. Now that you're on a university campus and you're in a faculty role, what influence has your own experience had upon how you might see the needs of the needs of other international students on university or college campuses? Absolutely. So at Southern Oregon University, we do have um, a relatively small size, but um, hopefully growing international community. 
My work with international students is not just limited to my own university. So right now I'm working on multiple research manuscripts that talk about what are not just some challenges that international students face, but what are some unique strengths that they walk in with that counselors and uh, faculty and advisors can leverage. Once again, I want to challenge this one-sided story of international students being this helpless victims. I, I want to share the stories of courage, resilience, and this um, really spirited um, presence in the U.S. And with all this going on right now in our country where international students are basically being used as pawns to make universities and colleges reopen, they are once again reminded of how fragile their position is, how, uh, how much of a second-class citizens they are. So my research is in, way, in a way an advocacy work where I try to call out on officials, where I try to call out on systemic barriers that want international students to come here, pay out-of-state tuition, and not work more than 20 hours, that too only on campus, but also don't blink an eye before asking them to leave the country. So that discrepancy is what I'm trying to highlight through my research, through interviews, um, through and also my teaching. So even though I don't have a lot of international students in my classroom, I do train my students on how they can work with international students when they become clinicians. So it's a multiple level of challenging I'm trying to do at a practitioner level, at a researcher level, and then at a larger social justice level. With this current pandemic, how it has contributed to so many of the challenges. And I heard you when you said that with the international students, at times they're asked to leave or to pay out-of-state tuition, but asked to attend the university. So all these mm -hmm. challenges and, and barriers are put in the way at the same time. And you shared how you're, you're training up your students with knowledge about basically how to respond to the, the needs of international students too, clinically. Are, do you have any ways that you could share of, of how you're doing that, how you're educating your students to be able to respond clinically? So beyond all the research or the articles or the training manuals that we can learn, very important, but beyond that, the most important tool is the person itself, the counselor itself, the faculty or the advisor themselves. When we adopt this idea of humility, this idea of cultural humility that I know something, but I don't know everything about this other person and put ourselves as almost in this learning space, that in itself is such a transformative space. So if I were to walk in to work with an international student and say that, hey, I'm willing to learn with you, about you, but I'm also willing to try very hard and support you in the best way possible. Are we willing to do this? Are we ready to do this together? So, um, so when I say this as a peer in the class that, or as a teacher that I'm willing to learn about you, I'm not gonna assume I know everything about your experiences just because I read two papers or I have this friend from India from 10 years ago, uh, that is so important because international students are already tired and stressed and dealing with multiple restrictions in their life. And to be told, I know your story better than you know, 
is so frustrating and so painful to hear. So when people around international students or any marginalized community, you know, for that matter, say that, I don't know your full story, but I'm here to listen and, and, and let you take the space. That is exactly what is needed of an ally right now. Not to stand in front of me, not to stand behind me, but beside me in a patient space. And when we are open to admitting to our mistakes. So if that person who called, who talked about my pronunciation, if they had been willing to learn from me about my English speaking skills, that would have been a transformative learning experience for them. But instead, uh, their assumed knowledge about my language skills stopped them from a learning moment. So it's our choice. Do I want to learn or do I want to assume that my learning is complete? And I hope we choose the former when we work with international students. That, that word transformative really says a lot when someone's able to open them up, themselves up for change to actually happen, not just what I refer to as this cookbook recipe type behaviors <laughs> that a textbook gives us. This population does this and then we put our belief and trust basically <laughs> in what a textbook says, you know, all, although, like you said, they are valuable and provide some key points of information, but they don't give everything. They don't give the uniqueness of that person's human experience or that person's particular story. Um, so we do have to engage and take opportunities to learn and be transformed to really hear and work to the best of our ability to understand that other person's experience. Would you have any closing words you would like to share with our listeners? You have already said so much, just I appreciate your uniqueness in counseling, working to abstain from imposing labels, but recognizing the fullness of the individuals, how to respond to say microaggressive statements, your own self-work that you have done and the work you're doing with research and your students, you're doing great things. That's the best way I can say it. You're doing great things. But is there anything else you would like to leave for our listeners? Um, I do believe that each person definitely carries their own unique stories, own unique scars, right? And there's a quote uh, by the Persian poet Rumi that says, the wound is where the light enters you. So the stories that break us down, the stories that uh, fatigue us, that, that you know, push us to go on our knees and just sob, those are also the stories that also empower us, make us come closer to our own existence and to the shared moment of just being a human. So every time I hope when we feel like we are breaking down, I hope we find that as a moment to connect with the rest of the people around us with the pandemic, with the social distance going on, it's so easy to think it's all about just me. But every time we feel something that can be an opportunity to connect with those millions, billions of people that occupy the same space, the same same identities, the same bodies. Um, and that can be, that's exactly what's needed right now for us to come together and close it. Thank you for those words. And I appreciate that you took the time to be on There's Power in Your Story and for sharing so many parts of your story. And I hope those pieces you share can be stepping stones, periods of enlightenment for other people. So again, I appreciate you being with us today. Thank you for having me, Dr. Hardy. Appreciate it. 
Thank you again to Dr. Vali for sharing her story. My hope is that you were able to learn so much more about counseling, about microaggressions, and about coping. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share with others. Take care. Until next time. Thank you.